Uh, Today's scripture reading is from Joshua 14, verses 6 through 12. Then the sons of Judah drew near to Joshua and Gilgal. And Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and and the Kinzanite, said to him, You know the word which the Lord spoke to Moses, the man of God concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. I was 40 years old when when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought word back to him as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt with fear. But I followed the Lord my God fully. So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden will be an inheritance to you and to your children forever, because you have followed the Lord my God fully. Now behold, the Lord God, the Lord God has let me live, just as he spoke these 45 years from the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses when the Israel walked in the wilderness. And now, behold, I am 85 years old today. I am still as strong as today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. And my strength was then, so my strength is now, for war and for going out and coming in. Now then, give me this hill country about which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day Anakim were there with great fortified cities. Perhaps the Lord will be with me, and I will drive them out as the Lord has spoken. Well, good morning, everybody. One of the things we love to do on weekends like this, you get the family together, and I think most families immediately start telling stories. We've been with several families this weekend here, and when you get everybody together, one of the great things to do is to remember who you are as a family by telling stories about what you've done, memories, and it's in the good times, if you go to a wedding rehearsal dinner, what does everybody do? They tell their favorite stories about the bride and the groom. And on the flip side, we went to a funeral this week where what did the family want to do? They wanted to share their memories and their stories to remember their loved one. It's just something that we're wired to do. We're story people. God made us in such a way that we don't just learn things by sentences, we learn things by stories. That's why the Bible is so long. It has a simple message, but it's so long because we have to see how this played out in history. How was God faithful? How did he fulfill his promises? How did he show his character? How did he save his people? And we get to see the real lives of people who lived for God and God came through in their life. That's what Bible stories are there to teach us is they trusted him then and you can trust him now. That's why we have stories like the story of Caleb, who I think is one of the most underrated heroes of the Bible in our Bible, nestled in the book of Joshua after the conquest of the promised land and right before what I think is the most boring part of the Bible. It's inspired, it's profitable, but it's hard to get through. You get this wonderful story of a person who followed God with their whole heart. In the Bible, there's eight times that someone is described as being wholehearted before the Lord, somebody that fully followed the Lord. And six times, it's about Caleb. Six of the eight times, when you look to somebody who gave God their whole heart, who invested their whole life and their whole being and all their aims and goals and ideas and dreams to God, it was Caleb who did it. Now, he's typically overshadowed by Joshua. Joshua gets all the press. He's got a book named after him in the Bible. He's much more well-known. But Caleb is a hero for anybody who wants to give their whole heart to God. And in fact, if you think about Jesus, when a lawyer comes up to Jesus and he says, okay, what's your interpretation of the law? 
if you were going to boil down the Bible to one essential message from the Old Testament, what would it be? And Jesus says it would be this. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. On this hangs all the law and the prophets. And so it's funny that if you ask, what is it that God really wants from you? Or what is it that God really desires from you? Or on the flip side, what is it that you can actually give to God? Have you thought about this? God doesn't need anything. He doesn't need anything in the universe. He has never once looked up and said, I'm without something. He has never looked up and said, I forgot about that. He's never thought, if we only had this. God is self-sustaining, the creator of everything. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. What could you possibly give to God? Before you give anything, God says, give me your whole heart. Give me your whole heart. And so wherever you are with God, if you've walked with God forever, if you don't know God and you're thinking about it, if you're not thinking about God and you don't know him, the, the demand on our lives is simple. Give your whole heart to God. That's what he asks for. That's what he requires. And Caleb is the perfect example because he does this. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to look at three stories from the life of Caleb that show us what it means to follow God with your whole heart. Now, in the Old Testament, most of you are familiar with the fact that names have really significant meanings. So you get all these characters, like Elijah is one of my favorites. His name is My God is God. Or we talked about Daniel, who means God is my judge. And a lot of times, parents would name their kids something that they would grow up into. And it's like you name them this great concept, and they would grow up into it. But Caleb's name means dog. That's it. Just dog. Not even like a specific kind of dog. Just your garden variety dog. And I thought about that. I said, is there anything meaningful here in the fact that his name means dog? And I'll tell you, this is a little bit of a stretch. But I think what you're going to see is the quality of Caleb that jumps out over and over again is faithfulness, is faithfulness. He is a companion, right? He's not the number one guy. Joshua's the number one guy. He's the number two guy, and he is faithful. He is wholehearted. He lives his whole life for God. So what did Caleb know, or what was it that made him the kind of person we should emulate? And I have three statements this morning from Scripture that Caleb embodies, that if you want to live with your whole heart devoted to God, Make these your maxims. Make these your life statements. And the first one is, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? So let me set up the scene in the book of Numbers, chapter 13. The Israelites have just come out of Egypt. And when they come out of Egypt, God has really flexed his muscles. You remember the plagues happen, the Red Sea splits, there's a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day, there's manna and quail falling from heaven. I mean, this is one of those periods in biblical history that if you can't see what God's doing in this period of time, you are blind. He is doing all kinds of miracles to show them that he's delivering them, he's faithful to them, he's doing what he's promised. And so Caleb has grown up in this phase. He was born in Egypt. He comes out of the promised land. He is a leader among his people. And they get to the edge of the promised land. And in Numbers chapter 13, God says to Moses, send, me, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From every tribe of your fathers, send a man, everyone a chief among them. 
So we find out that there's 12 men who are selected. Two of them are Caleb and Joshua. Caleb is from the tribe of Judah. Judah is the prominent tribe. That's where Jesus is from, the tribe of Judah. David is the king of the tribe of Judah. And so Caleb is a very prominent man. He's probably 40 years old at this point, and he's selected from among his people to go on this reconnaissance mission into the promised land. Now, I want to reframe our expectations a little bit on this. We typically think of this mission like, hey, go in and look around and see if it's possible that we might be able to take this promised land. This is not the kind of mission these spies were on, because otherwise they would have given a pretty good report. Notice what God says, send men to spy out the land which I am giving to you, which I am giving to you. There's no, I found a land, I think you guys might be able to take it if you fight your best battles. Go ahead and see what your strength is compared to theirs, and then you can decide if you want to take it or not. That's not this mission. The mission is, I'm giving you this land, go in, look around, get a plan, and go in and take it. It's like somebody that gave you a car or something and was like, would you like to give it a test drive? And you come back, you're like, no thanks, I don't like it. I'd like something different. And so when the spies come back, everybody is astounded because that's exactly what they do. It's supposed to be like a friends and family launch. Like I'm thinking Moses thinks they're going to come back and talk about how awesome this land is because the description is amazing. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. Wonderful. That's exactly what you need when you've been in the desert and you're coming out of Egypt. And, and beyond that, the fruit is so big, they take a cluster of grapes and they have to put it on a pole and two men have to carry it back as a sample of what's to come. But there's one little problem. Giants in the land. The spies are really unnerved by the giants. They say the, the place is great, flowing with milk and honey, but there's these descendants of Anak, of the Nephilim. These are mighty men. These are giants. And what we take in the, in the conquest is these are warlords in the land. And they're like, their armor is too good, their cities are too fortified, they are too big. We look like grasshoppers compared to them. We could not do this. Well, Caleb and Joshua have a different version of this story. They say later in the chapter, yeah, all that is true, but this is the land God gave us. God has promised to give us this land. We should go in and do what God says. And the spies are like, no way, no, it's not going to happen. We've seen our troops. They have way more people at this point than these cities but they are terrified of what will happen if they go in and do what God had told them to do. In fact, this escalates so much that at the end of chapter 13 in the book of Numbers, Caleb is pleading with the people, let us go up and occupy it, for we are able to overcome it. And the people says, we are not able to overcome it, and the people freak out and want to go back to Egypt. Because Egypt, in comparison, looks comfortable. They're like, you remember Egypt? We had three square meals a day, we had jobs, we had a place to live, and now everything is uncertain about our future. And Caleb says, if God has promised it, God is for us, who could possibly be against us? Well, this doesn't go very well. If you remember the end of this story, the people decide to stone Caleb and Joshua to death. And it isn't until the glory of the Lord appears to stop them that they relent. So it's a huge crisis in the nation of Israel. Out of maybe a million or so people... There's only three of them who believe that if God promised it, then no enemy can prevail against us. So you have to ask the question, if Joshua and Caleb went and saw the same land that these other spies did, what was the difference? Right? They all saw the same thing. They looked at the same set of circumstances, they looked at the same pro and con list, and they came to radically different conclusions. 
So what was it about Caleb and Joshua that looked upon this circumstance that other people thought was a trial or imminent doom, and they said, this is an opportunity for God to be true to his word? What was it about them that changed that? Well, here's the thing. Caleb and Joshua were using a different system of measurement than the other spies were. The other spies were measuring their problems compared to them. We are like grasshoppers to them. Our problems are bigger than we are. Our problems are insurmountable on our strength. Our problems are something that we can never figure out, never triumph over. And Caleb and Joshua are actually measuring the problem against something different. Do you remember what they say? Our God can overcome this. Our God is bigger than they are. And so when they, the people compare their problems to themselves, Joshua and Caleb compare their problems to God. And the perspective is totally different. Because chances are you're either in, coming out of, or going into a problem that is bigger than you are. Amen. That's just the way life works. You're going to be overwhelmed by something that left to your own strength, you are not going to be able to do it. And in fact, if you try to live the Christian life for more than like five days, you're going to encounter something that God brings in your path that you feel like is totally more than you bargained for. And what that means is God is giving you an opportunity to check the lens that you're using. Am I measuring this problem by my own strength or am I measuring this problem by God's strength? I remember Paul and his companions in 2 Corinthians, they come up and we actually don't know exactly what happened. Given Paul's life, it was probably terrible because everywhere Paul went, he was beaten, he was stoned, he was left for dead, he was shipwrecked, and he says, something so bad happened to us that we despaired of life itself. We felt like we had received a death sentence. And Paul has this same kind of vision that Joshua and Caleb has. He measures his problem against God, and do you remember what he says? He says, we thought we'd received a death sentence, which is fine because it taught us to rely on the God who raises the dead. Amen. That's the kind of perspective. If God is for us, who can be against us? If only we are for us, it's easy to be against us. But if God is for us, who could possibly be against us? You know, this line, I took this line from the New Testament. It's from Romans chapter 8. And I think it precedes the greatest promise in the Bible. And there are a lot of awesome promises in the Bible. In fact, you can buy books that have a promise for every day of your life from the Bible. And of all the promises in the Bible, this one is the greatest promise. It's in Romans chapter 8, verse 31 and 32. Here's what Paul says. What then shall we say? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give us all things? See, the bedrock of the Christian life is not that we are sufficient. That's, that's not a Christian thing to believe, that we are sufficient for everything that would happen. The bedrock of our life is that when we were at our worst, God gave the most valuable thing to him for us. So if we were enemies with God and he gave his son, his only begotten son, for you to cleanse you from sin, to bring you back to him, to live a life in relationship with him, if he did that when you were not thinking about him, you were sinning, you were rebelling against him, and he gave that, the logic is then how could we think that he won't give us everything we need now that we've been reconciled to him? He already gave the thing he needed to give to buy you back. How much more will he give you the things you need to follow him in your life now? Jesus tells a parable that illustrates this. We typically take this parable to uh, explain the second greatest commandment, which is love your neighbor as yourself. 
But this parable is actually kind of a little play on these commandments where it explains the first commandment, love God as he's loved us, and love your neighbor, and it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Remember this parable? So there is a Samaritan who comes along, and after several Jews have gone by, there's a person who's been jumped on the side of the road, laying there, left for dead. And the religious people go by, and they actually go on the other side of the road because to get too close would mean they were unclean, and they might be far from God. So the Samaritan, who is a type of person that has historic enmity, they are uh, enemies of the people of Israel, they, the Israelites viewed them as traitors, not religious, not with God, not good people, he comes by. And he looks, and he has compassion on the person who is laying there, and he goes over and picks him up and binds up their wounds and takes him into the town of Jericho, and he pays for them to stay, and he says, if they need anything, put it on my account. And like I said, we typically read that story. It's to illustrate who our neighbor is. That's the kind of love we're supposed to have. But it's not just the love that we have because we're great people. It's the kind of love we have because it's the kind of love God has for us. Our love is modeled on the kind of love that God has. In Ezekiel chapter 16, there's a story that I think is the background for the Good Samaritan. God comes by and sees us on the side of the road. And we are so helpless at this point. We're like babies who have been left for dead. And God has compassion and takes us into his home and dresses us up and makes us princes and princesses in his home, royalty, decked out in all of the stuff that we might be a part of his family. So the parable of the Good Samaritan is a retelling of what God has done for us. And Jesus says, go and love your neighbor this way. And the logic of this promise is if God did that for you, If God comes by and sees you and picks you up and takes you in and goes to the courtyard Marriott in Jericho and they say, that's all well and good, but breakfast is going to be extra. What does the Good Samaritan say? Throw it in. All right, we've already come this far. Go ahead and throw it in. Put it on my tab. It's like the problems that we worry that God might have forgotten about in our lives are so small in comparison to sending his son to die on the cross. How could we not think that if he's gone this far, He's willing to throw the rest in. He's willing to sustain us. He's willing to be with us. He's willing to give us everything we need. That if he's for us, no one can be against us. So Caleb knows this. He knows when they come to the land, it's not about the people. It's not about the fortifications. It's not about the size of the army. It's whose side is God on. And if God is with us, we should do what he says. The second thing he knows is that if God promised it, he will do it. If God promises it, he will do it. God has never broken a promise in the history of the universe. He has always come through on his word. So the spies go into the land, and they go to the area of the hill country where the town of Hebron is. And Hebron is a really significant town because it's the seat of the tribe of Judah later on. And it's a religious site. It's it's a really powerful religious place. But hundreds of years before this, it took its significance from the ancestors of these people Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, if you're coming through the book of Genesis and you look up Hebron, what you'll find is Abraham in Genesis 12 is promised that he will have a land and a people and a blessing. Those are the three things that God wants to give him. He says, you're going to have a promised land, you're going to have a people, even though they didn't have any kids at this point, and through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. From you two people, soon to be three, every nation on earth is going to be blessed from your offspring. Well, as they go through, Abraham is a wanderer, and he gets to this point where his wife 
is about to die, Sarah's about to die, and so he buys some land so that he can bury her, and he also wants to be buried there, and it is in the promised land and is in the town of Hebron. Now, it's the only place that they ever own in the promised land, is this little burial plot in Hebron. And it turns out, as you follow through the story in Genesis, not only are Abraham and Sarah there, but Isaac is buried there, and Jacob is eventually there, and Joseph gives instructions to bring his bones out of Egypt because he doesn't want to be buried in Egypt. He wants to be buried with his family in Hebron. So imagine the scene. The spies show up in Hebron, and you know exactly where they're going, to the burial plot of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And they go to this area, probably caves, where their ancestors are buried, and they stand there And they think about all that God has done and all that God has promised hundreds of years before that. That they are now standing on the cusp of what Abraham only saw a glimpse of. The land and the nation and the blessing. And they are about to have a land, they already have a nation, and they are about to be a blessing if they're faithful to God in the land that Abraham bought. But the discouraging thing is, only some of the spies believe this. I think about this, how could you stand there and look at that and think about what God did for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and how he came through and he, and he, and he was faithful to his promises and then go back and be terrified that maybe God's not going to answer his promise for you. But actually, this is like the most human thing ever. If there's anything Israel teaches us in the Old Testament, it's that human nature is pretty much the same from the beginning of time until now. Well, God did it for somebody else or God did it in the past, but I don't think he's going to do it now. I don't think he's going to do it this time. And God actually put a ritual into the history of Israel to remind them that he doesn't break his promises. So not only did they go to these graves and they see all these people buried and they should be reminded of God. It's like if you've ever been to Westminster Abbey or St. Paul's and you go in and you expect it to be a church and then everywhere there's people buried under the church on the ground. I mean, you can't go anywhere in these old churches without there being people buried everywhere. It's like, why do they do that? I brought that up with our elders, but we haven't gotten it approved yet for this church. But it's like, why, why do they do that? Why not just bury them outside? Well, it's because when you walk in there, you're supposed to think about their life and that they went before you and that they saw God do things that remind us that he's going to do the same things for us. These, are, these stones these, that are in the floor or tombstones are standing stones for us. That if you remember what happened to them, And they didn't know what was going to happen. They didn't know how it was going to pan out. God was faithful to them. And they are here as a reminder to you as you walk into this church that God doesn't break his promises. When Israel crosses over the Jordan, right before the story we're reading today, they actually set up standing stones. And at the time, God says, set up these big stones, one for every tribe, so that when you come past here, you'll remember. You'll be able to tell your kids, what are those stones for? Well, that's the time that God parted the waters and brought his people across dry land. That's, that's the time when we did what God told us to do, and the miraculous happened. He came through. Because if you think about it, the spies are so worried about what these battles are going to be like. But then when you read later what the battles are like, it's not like the strength of their armies are what wins it anyway. It's like in the story of Jericho, they're marching around singing and blowing trumpets, and the city falls down. That's not the strength of the army. That's God keeping his promise. Or like Gideon later, God whittles down his army so small that he's only got a little ragtag bunch of troops that drank the right way out of the river and all of this selection so that they can 
basically blow trumpets and bang against pots and use their torches to make the enemy think there's more of them than there are. And they conquer this city because of God, not because of them. And so the story from start to finish is God's going to answer his promises. He's going to honor them. He's going to do them. And he's almost always going to do it in a way that confounds the power and the wisdom and the strength of us. God's going to answer our prayers. He's going to fulfill his promises in a way that he's the one who gets glorified in the end. And why is that? That seems like kind of, you know, it's like, does he have an ego problem or something? He's the one that gets the glory? Because he is what everybody needs. Right, so if you are the hero of your story, if you answer the promises of God in your own strength, people look to you, what can you do for them? But if he answers, answers his promises in such a way that people say, God is faithful, and they come to him, he can be everything they've ever wanted and ever needed, and he draws people to himself. So our role is to be like Caleb, who wholeheartedly say, I'm going to run after this, and if God promised it, he's going to do it. Well, here's the last thing. If God is in it, I will be too. That's Caleb's life. If God is part of it, if God is going towards it, that's where I want to be. So at the end of Caleb's life, the passage that Casey read for us this morning in the book of Joshua, Caleb has been with the people of Israel wandering in the wilderness for 45 years. So think about this. You come back, you lose a vote, 2 to 10, to go into the promised land, and then you have to wander for 40 years while the rest of the nation passes away, and you finally get to go into the promised land. And at this point, Caleb is 85 years old. He is 85 years old, just as strong as he was when he was 40. It says God sustained him, and he is ready to do what God promised 45 years ago. This passage is just incredible because he comes to Moses, and he says, or he comes to Joshua and says, Moses promised that I could have that land. In fact, at some translations, this is translated as, give me that mountain. That's the one I want for my family. And everybody around is like, isn't that the one the giants were on? Isn't that the one we were so scared of to begin with? The hill country right outside of Hebron? They had the giants. We didn't want to go there. And he's like, I have been spoiling for this fight for 45 years. Now it's time to see God do what he promised to do. And so as an 85-year-old man, he's ready to charge the hill because if God is a part of it, Caleb will be too. That's his life. That's the theme of his life. He wants to finish strong. Because if he sees God doing it, he wants to be a part of it. Now there's an added dimension to Caleb's story that just makes this point come alive. Caleb is introduced as a Kenizzite. And for most of us, we just skip right over that. We don't know how to pronounce it. We don't know what it means. We just leave it. But if you look up what a Kenizzite is... Kenizzites are not actually Israelites. They are from the wrong side of Abraham's family. They are not children of Isaac. Um, they are children of Ishmael. And they go down through a line that is actually parallel to the Israelites, but not in. And so what happened was, sometime in history, Caleb's family decided, this is the one true God, and though there's a barrier historically, we want to be part of the family. We want to be part of God's people. So whatever we've got to do, whoever we need to put aside so we can worship God, we're doing it. And so Caleb's family gets grafted in. And over time, not only is he still a Kenizzite, now he's from the tribe of Judah. He has a mixed background. He wasn't raised in the same way other people were. His family doesn't have the same heritage that they do. But he's been a part of them. He's worshiping God. He's in. Because for him and his family, 
They decide if God's in it, we're going to be part of his people. So Caleb says, give me that mountain, and he's going to climb it, and he's going to conquer that city, and it's going to be the inheritance of his family forever. It's going to be the inheritance of his family all the way through the kingdom of Israel and Judah, all the way to the time of the exile. His family line lives on this mountain. And so the final thing I just want to point out about Caleb's life, if you want to live wholeheartedly, not only do we trust God's promises, not only to get in line with what God's doing, we believe, like Caleb did, that this mountain will be an inheritance. Think about how powerful this is in Caleb's life. This mountain is filled with foreign armies and giants. This is a trial that he's signing up for. This isn't the victory lap. This is finally, after all this time, the big tribulation, the big moment, the big difficulty, and he is charging forward because he knows that if God is with him, this mountain that he's climbing, this trial that he's going through, this thing that he's expecting God to show up and make right is going to be a story that his family tells forever about God coming through. His mountain turns into an inheritance. So if you want to live wholeheartedly, fully engaged, sold out, what do you need to be reminded of? What stories do you need to tell to yourself, to your family, with the people that you're gathered with this weekend and in the coming weeks? What do you need to remember about God? What are you expecting him to do that you need a little bit of strength to look back and say, he's done it in the past, he'll do it now. Give him your heart, because if God is with you, nobody can be against you. Let me pray. Father, we don't just talk about this, we ask you for it. And so, Father, I ask that now, as we're thinking about, what is, what is my mountain? What are the things that you've called me to do that just seem bigger than I can bear? God, what are the things that you're doing in, in my life that I'm shying away from because there's a part of my heart that's just not in it, not committed to you, terrified, scared, self-conscious? Father, what would it take for me to go exactly where you call, when you call, to trust you to do what only you can do for me? Father, remind me of the sacrifice that you've made. Father, when we think about your son, Jesus, fill us not just with reverence and awe, but with the tenderness that we have been welcomed back into your family. Father, I ask now that as we worship and as we go from here, that you would go with us just the same way you went with Caleb. Father, be with us, strengthen us, give us your eyes to see the world the way you see it, and bring us safely into your kingdom forever and ever with you. In Jesus' name we pray.